And I would like to read this very uh, familiar chapter to you, beginning with the last phrase of the last verse of chapter 12. Now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I heard a story some weeks ago about a woman who was garage sale hopping, and uh, she came upon a box of uh, used books, and as she was rummaging around in the box, she found a volume entitled, entitled How to Hug, and she thought, now that's a wonderful study. She could picture herself being much more loving and affirming toward her husband and her children and her grandchildren. She could always answer in the affirmative that bumper sticker that raises the question, have you hugged your, wife, uh, hugged your child today? And uh, so she purchased the volume and she took it home and opened it up and discovered that what she had bought was one volume from an Encyclopedia Britannica covering, covering the entries from HOW to HUG. She was terribly disappointed. The idea of learning how to hug and be hugged is appealing to all of us because we all want to be loved and we want to love. That's, that's what we're made for. James Taylor has a line in one of his uh, songs, Love is the Only Road. It's a simple human fact that we just can't live without, uh, without care and without affirmation and without acceptance, despite uh, what we are. We live in a very cold world. Jesus predicted that as the evil of the world becomes more intense, the love of many, he said, will grow cold. 
We're living in a world like that today. Tina Turner belts out her creed. What does love have to do with it? Teaching us uh, to live without the complications of love, but it just doesn't work. Little children die without love. Adults wither, at least their souls wither and die if they're not loved. So the question we simply uh, we, we have to face is where can we find a, a love like this and what is love? Ray Stedman used to uh, quote, a, quote a poem that goes something like this, Love is such a funny thing, it's almost like a wizard. It winds itself around your heart and nibbles at your gizzard. <laughs> love has that uh, strange quality about it, about it. It just gets inside of you and does something that, that nothing else uh, can do. Where is this uh, sweet mystery of life? Well, this, uh, this chapter, which Paul wrote, is all about love, how to give it, and what love is. Now, uh, though this chapter often is considered as a unit all by itself, it really should not be looked at that way always. This is not a digression. It's part of the argument that Paul begins in chapter 12, where he writes concerning what he calls spirituals. That is the way in which the Holy Spirit manifests himself within the church. This was the section that uh, Chris taught last week. In the first three verses of chapter 12, we're told that the Holy Spirit unifies us. He's the one that, uh, that leads us all into a single confession of the Lordship of Christ. That's one of the marks of a Spirit-filled person in a Spirit-filled church is that they say with one voice, Jesus Christ is Lord. Then in the verses remaining in chapter 12, we're told that the Holy Spirit diversifies the church. He's the one that gives spiritual gifts, each one of you, as was pointed out, uh, pointed out last week, has one or more spiritual gifts with which you can minister to the body of Christ. No Christian was behind the door when the gifts were passed out. All of you have at least one gift that you can, can use to serve a brother or sister in, in Christ. And those gifts are diverse, just as the many parts of the body and functions of the body are diverse. But then in chapter 13, Paul turns to another characteristic of a spirit-filled church, the Holy Spirit not only unifies and diversifies the church, but he beautifies the church. He gives to us that winsomeness of character that is the result of, of his work within us. Now, verse uh, 31 of the final chapter, uh, pardon me, of chapter 12, is really the bridge into 13. Paul says to the Corinthians, eagerly desire the greater gifts, those gifts that he has spelled out in this chapter as the more important gifts, the gift of apostleship, the prophetic gifts, and the gifts of teaching, and, and the other gifts that are uh, given to us in order there. And, and, he, and he admonishes the church in Corinth to seek out in their midst those that have these gifts, because they're the gifts that build up uh, the body. But, he says, the gifts in and of themselves are not enough. Now, he says, I will show you the more excellent way. As I said, the mark of a church in which the Holy Spirit is at work is a church that is characterized by, by love. Love is 
the most wonderful thing in the world, as Henry uh, Drummond put it in his classic work on this uh, on this chapter. And the Paul that you, uh, the word that Paul uses for love in this passage uh, was uh, it's very common for the New Testament, but it's not found much outside the New Testament. It's a word that uh, stresses the selflessness of love. It's a, it's a word that's used to characterize God's love uh, for us, which has no thought of self in it. And uh, it really has to do with a willingness to give ourselves to other others, even though that love is unrequited. It's not uh, return. Years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, a imp- very important uh, work, which he entitled Four Loves, in which he talked about the uh, four loves, four words for love that were used in classical Greek. Uh, uh, Lewis uh, was a classical Greek scholar, and he drew from the writings of that period the various words that were used to express affection and love and commitment. He said there are four of them. The first is the word eros, from which our word erotic comes. That really has to do with love making the more sensual side of of love. And that word does not occur in in the New Testament. The second word is the word phileo that does occur in the New Testament. It's the word from which the city of Philadelphia draws its name, the city of brotherly love. uh, It really has the idea of affection and familiarity. It's a kind of love that that good friends have for one another. It's a a warmth and and, uh, an affection for one another. That's best described by that term. The other word is storge, which again does not occur in the New Testament, at least not in that form. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes storge as duck love. He says it's the kind of natural affection you have for little fuzzy, furry things, uh, little little children and little animals. It's a kind of a natural uh, inclination of the heart towards small, helpless things. As I said, that word doesn't occur in the New Testament except, except in its negated form, astorge, which occurs two places in the New Testament where it's translated with words like heartless and without natural affection in Romans 1, for example. It just really has to do, storge has to do with, uh, with a, a warmth and affection toward the innocent and the, and the small. And then the final word is the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, agape, which has the idea of a selfless, giving kind of, uh, kind of love. Now, Paul divides his study in that word into three parts. That, that Actually, the paragraph uh, divisions in the New International Version follow his argument very closely. The first section, one through three, has to do with the power of love. The next section from verses 4 through 7 has to do with the properties or the practice of love, what it looks like. And then the final section, verses 8 through 13, the permanence of love, the fact that love like that battery-powered bunny just keeps on going. Now, Paul writes first about the power of love. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul here is talking about the gift of tongues, which is the supernatural God-given capacity to speak in a foreign language, a language that would be found somewhere in the world, 
a language that's susceptible to the normal laws of syntax and grammar, but a language which you have not learned. It was a gift that was given in the early church. We're going to talk more about that gift when we come to chapter 14. Paul says, if you have that gift, the capacity to speak uh, languages that are unknown to you, and even, and here I think he's using hyperbole, even a few angelic uh, languages. But uh, if you don't have love, he said, you, you're just sound and fury and noise and commotion. Your, your message really has no impact upon others. Secondly, Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy, which is the, again, a, the, a capacity that was given to the early church. It has to do with uh, the ability of certain men and women to receive direct revelation from God and then to pass that revelation on to the church. It was a gift that was extremely important in the early years of the church before the New Testament collection was was complete. And Paul said, even if you have the gift of prophecy to the extent that you understand the deep things of God, the profundities of God, and you have insight into the character of God that that no one else uh, has, if, if you have the knowledge of mysteries, that is, things that can only be known as a result of, of revelation. And you have all knowledge, but uh, if you don't have love, he says you're nothing. And if you have the gift of faith, which is the capacity to believe God for great things, it's a wonderful gift when manifest within the body of Christ because it stirs the rest of us up to to believe what God has, has promised, what he has said he will, he will do. But Paul says, even if you have that great gift, and uh, if you don't have love, he says, you're, you're nothing. And then finally, he describes uh, a couple of acts of service. One is parceling out your goods. It's literally the word that he uses. You hand out your possessions uh, one by one. People come to your door, and they need food, they need clothing, they need... They need housing, they need money, and you give away everything you possess. Your house, everything that belongs to you, you give all of that away, which is, would be a wonderful thing to do. But Paul says if you don't have love, then you gain nothing. And then finally, he speaks of martyrdom. If you surrender your body to the flames but have not love, you gain nothing. He's actually quoting, I, I believe, uh, from the book of Daniel and the reference there to the... Uh, children of the the, the three Hebrew men who were willing to give their bodies over to the flames for their their faith. And even if you were to undertake that noble act, giving up your life for the sake of, of the gospel, but if you do not have love, you have nothing. Now, what I like to do is to take these negatives and turn them into positives, because I think that's the point that Paul wants to make. Though I have, though you have, great gifts, if we do not have love, it profits us nothing. But on the other hand, when a gift is exercised in love, it has a great impact upon others. Why? Well, as I said before, because the greatest hunger of our heart is not for knowledge. It's for love. Pascal said the heart has reasons that reason doesn't have. And what he meant by that is that we do not really operate on the level of of the intellect most of the time. What drives us is that deep, deep hunger for affirmation and love. 
while people get caught up in cults. That's why people are now in the Branch Davidian uh, uh, cult down in Texas. I just saw an interview with a young man who'd been in that cult for a time, and and he said, very frankly, what drew him into the cult was what he perceived to be real love. They reached out to him. They seemed to, to care. He didn't know what they believed. He didn't care what they believed, but they loved him. As Joe Aldrich puts it, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And uh, what Paul is saying to us is that what really touches the heart is not our intellect, it's not our knowledge, it's love. That's the power of all ministry. That's what gives us impact, and that's something that, that we can do for everyone. We may not be highly gifted. We may not be able to communicate very well. Uh, we may not have a, a vast knowledge of, of the Word of God. All we have is the little bit that, that God has imparted to us. But if we have love for people, if we genuinely care about people, if we reach out to people, then that little bit is going to have a great impact upon others. That's the power of love. Now, the second issue that Paul turns to is what I have called the practice of love. He he uh, lists for us a series of properties. I do not think that, that Paul is saying this is all of what love is. I really think that he was thinking about the Corinthians and the areas where they were in deficit. And he's really, uh, he's speaking directly to some of the uh, lack of love that was experienced in that church. But it does give us a, a good idea of, of what love looks like. Now, uh, a moment ago, I gave you uh, an abstract definition of, of love. But uh, you really won't find an abstract definition of love anywhere in the New Testament because that's not the way this subject is, is treated. What, what the Bible does is give descriptive or operative definitions of love rather than abstractions. It says, you want to know what love is like? Then go look at that person. Just follow them around for a while. See how they, they treat people. Now, there's a person you see that's filled and flooded with the Spirit of God, and he or she is manifested. Just watch them for a while. Watch their kindness, their patience. Watch the way they deal with people. Or if you really want an example of love, and this is the one that, that uh, John in his little book, First uh, John, alludes to, just look at God. God is love, he says. That's the definition of love, is what God is like. If you want to see love, then just think through the ways in which God has loved us, his willingness to die for us, his willingness to adopt us into his family, his willingness to love us despite our exasperating ways and our tendency to be indifferent and to go our own way, he continues to love us. Or in verse 10 of chapter 4 in 1 John, John says, this is love. Do you want a definition of love? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And gave his son to be the expiation, the atonement for our sins. That's what love is. Is what God has done. Now that's what Paul is doing in this passage. This is what love looks like. Love is not ethereal. Love is not uh, uh, an abstract uh, uh, property. It is something very real and tangible that ought to show up in our lives when we're governed by the Spirit of God. Now... Uh, here is his uh, description of love. Love, he says, is patient and kind. Some of you have translations that indicate that those two uh, words are linked, and, and they are in Paul's text. Love is patient. 
and kind. The two go together. You may remember the uh, authorized version, the old King James translation of this verse. That's, I memorized it in the King James, and this morning when I was reading it, I lapsed into the, into the King James because it's hard to get it out of my mind. Love is long-suffering, is the way uh, the AV puts it. It suffers a lot. It puts up with a lot. This is a word that's always used for patience with people. There's another word that's often used with patience in circumstances. But this has to do with the kind with enduring the kind of pressure that that people put on you when they, they just don't quite come through. When they offend us over and over again. When they aren't aware of our feelings. When they trample on our sensitivities. That's what he's talking about. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother for stepping on my toes? And Seven times? And Jesus said, no, in effect, an infinite number of times. Love is patient, long-suffering, and it's kind. It's a word for graciousness in the New Testament. It gives, even though the object of love is not, is not worthy of it. I read a story this past week about Edwin Stanton, who, as you know, was the war secretary under Abraham Lincoln. And uh, Stanton and Lincoln were always in conflict with one another. And, and Lincoln, before uh, Stanton, before he became Lincoln's uh, secretary of war, despised Lincoln. Stanton was an attorney, highly educated attorney. Lincoln was not educated uh, well, as you know, self-taught. And uh, he referred to uh, Lincoln publicly one time as a clown. And uh, on another, uh, at another occasion, as a gorilla, because you know Lincoln's real tall, real long arms, great big hands, and he said, uh, you know, why do we go to Africa to find gorillas for our zoos? You can find one in Springfield, Illinois, and this kind of thing. He just constantly pressured Lincoln, and uh, Lincoln appointed him his war secretary because he could think of no one who was more competent. And uh, when Lincoln was shot, killed in the Ford uh, Theater, Stanton was one of the first people. Uh, to uh, arrive at the scene and knelt down by the cot where Lincoln was lying and he broke into tears and he said, here lies the greatest statesman the world has ever known. He, he won Stanton's heart, not by his intellect, but by his love. He continued to love that man to the very end. That's what love does. It's patient, it's gracious, it's kind. Love does not, does not envy, Paul says. It uh, doesn't covet the possessions and the good fortune of others. doesn't covet their wealth. doesn't covet, covet their advancement. doesn't begrudge the advancement of, of others. It, it, it rejoices when others are, are promoted. Now, that's hard for us. I have a friend who says he, he's always glad to give a, a, a helping hand to everyone who's above him. You know, and that's uh, sort of the way we, uh, we approach those that, that are exalted and we're not. It, it miffs us. It rubs us the wrong way when others receive glory for something we've done. But uh, Paul says love doesn't covet the good fortune of others, doesn't begrudge the uh, uh, praise that they receive, the promotions that, that they receive. And then uh, love does not boast Paul uses a word that actually means a windbag. 
he has, he has in mind something other than, than bragging. He really has the idea of just being full of hot air. I uh, heard a poem years ago. Well, actually, it's not a poem. It was uh, There was an argument going on between a, a man and woman, husband and wife, and he, he lost his temper, and he said to her, you're nothing but a rag and a bone and a hank of hair, you know the saying, and she turned on him and said, yeah, and you're a brag and a groan and a tank of air. And uh, uh, that's, what, that's what Paul is talking about here. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about itself. Love listens. I think that's what he's saying. I read a, a book years ago. Some of you have seen it called How to Really Love a Child. It's a wonderful little book. And uh, the author talks about the need to really listen to children. You know, children prattle on and we just sort of half listen and say, oh, yeah, mm, you know, and we read our newspapers or we're busy in the kitchen and our children talk. And, and he says, the thing to do when our children talk is just get down on your knees and look them right in the eyes and really listen to what they're, what they're saying. It's one way to build a sense of self-worth in a, in a child, to just take the time to listen. But, you know, we're like children, too. We, 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 we really love it when people will listen to us. How many times in your experience have people, as you sat conversing with them, actually asked you questions about your life and listened to you? You know, we're more prone to talk about ourselves. We want to tell our stories. We want to spin our yarns. And uh, those of us that are hunters and fishers, you know, we like to, we play uh, Can You Top This every time we're together and you tell your story and I've got a bigger story and on and on it goes. And we just do not really listen we like to talk about ourselves and that's what that's what Paul is concerned with love doesn't do that doesn't talk about itself love listens love cares enough to care what others are are saying and and thinking uh, love is not uh, is not rude it has good manners There's a good reason for manners you know, we were taught manners as children growing up. We sometimes wonder at the worth of it. But, but manners have are really sourced in, in love. It's if you really care about other people's sensitivities or sensibilities, you won't shock them. You won't be rude and crude and crass and do things that, that jar them, jar their, their emotions. Uh, it is not self-seeking. Uh, it doesn't seek its own good. It lives to help others become everything that, that God intends them to be. It is not easily angered. It isn't touchy. It isn't irritable. It doesn't flare up when others uh, do wrong. Uh, it's, it's willing to listen when it's criticized or, or, or corrected. Uh, it doesn't display itself in a bad temper. You know, we, we excuse our bad temper because of our ethnic backgrounds. I'm Irish. I can't help it. That's just the way I am. Or I'm Latin or whatever, and I, I, I just explode. I can't control myself. But uh, Paul says if you've learned the skill of love, then you will, have, you will be learning to control your temper because it, an angry temper does so much, so much damage. Henry Drummond, who uh, I mentioned before, wrote the, the classic study on this chapter, uh, put it this way, no, no form of vice, no worldliness, no greed of gold, not drunkenness itself, does more to dehumanize society than an evil temper. 
for embittering life, for breaking up communities, for destroying the most sacred relationships, for devastating homes, for withering up men and women, for taking the bloom out of childhood. In short, for sheer gratuitous misery-producing power, this influence stands alone. That's a mouthful, but really what he's saying is that uh, an evil temper does terrible damage. And if we really love people, we'll be learning how to how to deal with it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The word that Paul uses here literally is a word to, it has to do with putting things in a ledger. We write things down because we don't, we don't want to forget them. You ever have anyone say to you, do you remember what you did to me on April the 6th, 1965? And, and you know, they, they just remind you of the evil. that they see they, they, They're keeping account of, of evil. We need to forgive. We need to put it away. Not keep a, a record of, of the evil that others have, have done to us. Love does not delight in evil. Who in the world does that? Well, there's a whole industry based on our delight in evil. It's the tabloids. They, you know, they, people buy those things because they, they glory in the misdeeds and the miscues and the evil of of other people, uh, you say, "Well, that doesn't uh, that doesn't touch me because I never read those things." But what what occurred to me as I thought about this is our delight in telling about the miscues of others, gossiping about where they've gone wrong. Sometimes under the guise of praying for them, we really should pray for so and so because you know what what they did, and we're we're really reveling, delighting in the evil that others are doing. Love doesn't do that, but it rejoices with the truth. And as I was thinking about that phrase, I thought, well, I rejoice in the truth. That's my job. I teach the truth. I love the truth. But it occurred to me that I don't always rejoice in the truth, particularly when someone tells me a truth that I don't want to hear. But love will respond with gentleness and with meekness when the truth is directed toward us. It always... here. Four properties, which Paul introduces in each case with the word always. Perfect love always protects. Literally, it has the idea of covering over. Love does not vaunt, uh, display the misdeeds and the, and the wickedness and the sin of others and even the wrongs that they've done to us. It just it suppresses them. It doesn't, it doesn't go and talk to others about the evil that's been done, either to someone else or to us covers and protects the reputation of, of others. Always trust. That is, it's not suspicious of others. It doesn't impute to them wrong motives. It isn't always trying to figure out what evil machinations are going on in, 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 in their head. It just accepts at face value what they're saying insofar as they can. Now, that doesn't mean we ought to be naive. Jesus said we're, we're to be as smart as serpents, and there are people that, that are out to harm us, and we need to be aware of that and not be gullible. Even, even Jesus, when Judas kissed him in the, in the garden, a friend of mine who was going for counseling and saying, his situation is hopeless. And I thought of this first. I said, no, no, it isn't. It isn't hopeless. We, we, we can, there's always hope where God is concerned, no matter how far gone someone may be. There's always hope. And love... 
expects the best of people and, and waits for the best and looks for the best and believe, believes that God can take the most perverted character and begin to turn it toward, toward righteousness. And then finally, love always perseveres. I said it's like that uh, rabbit that just, uh, just keeps on going. Now, I, I don't know about you. This is terribly convicting. I read these, these words and I think, ah, me, how far I have to go. So we need to move on to the next paragraph. <clears throat> Where Paul deals with the permanence of love. Love never fails. And that's really the phrase that governs the entire paragraph. Love is forever. That's what we're made for, is to love and to be loved and that property will, uh, will never end. We'll love perfectly in, in heaven. We will love imperfectly here, but on ahead is glory. Paul says, uh, where, there are, uh, where there are prophecies, they will cease. That is this miraculous capacity to receive direct revelation and pass it on to the church. That will come to an end. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge... It will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part our knowledge, our use of the gifts, our acquisition of information and our, and our communication of it is always imperfect in this world. We're never going to get everything right. We're never going to know everything that we ought to know. As a matter of fact, it's my experience that where you find groups that really do believe they have all the truth, you will almost always find a lack of love. There. It's where people have this awareness that their knowledge is partial, that love can begin to flower. When I was a child, Paul said, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I, I put childish things, childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection. It is a reflection in a mirror. Just as a historical side note, Corinth was known for uh, her... Uh, Mirrors, they produce these beautiful bronze mirrors. But even the uh, most perfect uh, mirror uh, casts uh, a poor reflection, an imperfect reflection. Now we see, that is, uh, our understanding is somewhat distorted. Then we shall see face to face. That's the biblical idiom for direct communication. When we step into God's presence, we'll know perfectly what we should know. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. God knows everything there is about me to know. When we step into his presence, then our knowledge of him will be, will be perfect. Now my question is, what does Paul mean back in verse 10 when he says, when perfection comes? What is the perfect thing? Is it love? No, I don't think he's, he has that in mind here at all. Perfection is the coming of Christ. When our Lord comes back, then our knowledge, our, the use of our, uh, our uh, abilities to serve, everything about us will be, will be perfected. And love itself will come in its final form. But while I live in this uh, world, he's saying, there will always be uh, imperfection. But love, he says, goes on. Love is forever. It's something to look forward to. You may be living in a situation where you're loved imperfectly or not loved at all. I just want to assure you, one of these days we're going to step into the Lord's presence and we will experience love like 
We've never experienced it before. That's something to look forward to. Love is forever. See, we, we keep looking for perfection in this life. We keep looking for perfect knowledge and perfect love, perfect service, and we're not going to find it either in ourselves or, or in others. When uh, our number two son, Brian, was just entering kindergarten, he came back from, from school one day and he said, now I've learned how to snap and whistle. That, that is, uh, snap his shirts and, or no, snap his fingers. That's the way. Now I know how to snap and whistle. All I have to learn is how to tie, tie his shoelaces, and read. I've learned how to snap and whistle. Now I just have to learn how to tie and read. He thought when he had those those four areas down, then he knew everything there was to know. And we know that life is much more complicated than that. That's what Paul means when he said, when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I'm growing up, I realize that uh, that there's much yet to be learned, and we're not going to enter into that that full orb knowledge and that full orb love until we step in his presence. But my, isn't it good to look forward to that, that we're not going to be unloved for the rest of our lives. But uh, what about right now? And I think that's what Paul refers to in the last last verse, verse 13. This is, this is his bottom line. And now, for the present, I don't think he's using now here in a logical sense. Sometimes he does. I think he's using it in a temporal sense. Now, in this time, there abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. He says our knowledge is incomplete. Our capacity to serve is incomplete. But what do we have right now that keeps us going? Well, we have faith, that, that dependence upon God that puts us into a relationship with him and then keeps us going and keeps us, keeps us growing. And there's hope. On ahead is, is heaven and home and glory and all that, uh, that we've ever longed for in, in this life. Faith and hope are, the two, are two of the cornerstones of, of our Christian uh, experience. But Paul says the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. That's why Henry Drummond said that love is the greatest thing in the world. You know, some of us look at our lives and we say, you know, if I just had a better grasp of the Word of God, I I could be so much more effective. Well, all God wants you to do is to impart what God has taught you. There may just be a modicum of truth that you have. He wants you to impart that truth, but impart it in love. Maybe you don't know very much, but you can love people. Some of you are single parents, and, and you, you wish you could give more to your children. You're, you're living on the poverty line or below the poverty line, and you want so much to be able to provide for your children. And you can't do it, but you can love them. Or you're living with a husband or wife who, who just does not come through for you, who really does not know how to love you the way you, you want to be loved. And, and you, can't, you can't change your situation. You can't do anything about it, but... You can love them. Or some of you are struggling with, uh, with your appearance. You don't like the way you look. You wish you were more attractive or you're a little leaner or whatever. And, and you're struggling to, to try to deal with that. And you think, if I could just get this in hand, then I could. But you can love them. See? You can love people around you. That's something that any of us can do. 
And that's the greatest thing in the world. That's the greatest thing you can do for someone. As many of you know, I used to work with uh, university students, and I worked on a campus that drew kids from 1% of the high schools all across the United States, some of the brightest kids you've ever ever laid eyes on. They read everything. They forget nothing. And and I, I was so intimidated by that bunch. I knew I couldn't outthink them. I, I didn't know what they knew. I didn't have the intellectual capacity that they had. And I remember one night walking across the campus just being utterly intimidated by my presence on that campus, and, and the words from a friend of mine, Wally Howard, came back to me. Wally was the young life leader who led Carolyn, my wife, to Christ, and he told me about some of his first efforts to work with high school kids, and he realized that he, he was an older fellow, and he couldn't run with kids, and he didn't really understand them as well as he should, and he wasn't as bright as many of them were, but he said, I decided I'd outlove them. And I thought, no, I'll never be as intelligent as these kids are, but I can love them. And that's what Paul is saying. Our understanding of, of love is imperfect. Our understanding of the character of God is, in, is imperfect. We're not everything that we ought to be in mind, emotion, and will, and body. But we can love people. And that's the greatest thing in the world. And that's what people's hearts hunger for. Now, in closing, let me leave you with two, two facts. Where do you get this kind of love? Well, I think it comes from meditating, reflecting on the love of God. When you think about how much God loves us, just as we are, as uninteresting and exasperating as we are to him, and as indifferent as we often are, our, our moods uh, change, you know, we nag and we get moody and and we certainly fail him over and over again, and he continues to love us. He loved us from the very beginning. Even when we were sinners, he loved us, and he continues to love us. And as we meditate upon his love for us, his love causes our love to grow stronger. We love, John said, because he first loved us. second thing to do is begin to ask God to make you more loving. It's prayer that translates truth into, into life. It's not uh, by some middle process that we get the truth down into our, into our souls. Ask it to make you a more loving person. And continue to submit your failures to him, knowing that you're forgiven. And you can pick, get yourself up, pick yourself up, and, and move on again. And, and he'll continue to love others uh, through you. Now, you have in your bulletin a little card, and I have put a, a translation of 1 Corinthians 13 on that card. I have no idea who did it. Actually, it's on a coffee cup that Carolyn and I have at home, and uh, it's a cup that I often use, and I read through those words, and it's always very helpful to me to be reminded of what love looks like. And so I reproduce uh, those, uh, that, uh, that particular translation on your card. Here's what I'd like to have you do. Put that on your mirror, your dashboard of your car, your sink, uh, your, your uh, workbench, uh, wherever you, you will see it over and over again. Keep it in your wallet. Pull it out every once in a while and look at it. I'd like for you to do three things. First of all, put God's name where the word love occurs. God is love. Say. And real love is simply an expression of God's love. And uh, it does my heart good to read through that, uh, 
that text, putting God's name there, God is patient, God is kind, God always hopes the best for me. God is not self-seeking. He's always looking out for my, my good. It, it, it just warms my heart to be reminded again of the goodness of God. Second thing I'd like for you to do is put your name where it says love. David is kind and patient. No, he is not. <laughs> David is impatient and ungracious. And uh, what I find is that there is, it makes a nice little benchmark. I can read through there and put my name in uh, where it's appropriate. And uh, so I check up on myself. Am I making any progress in these areas? And then the third thing I'd like for you to do is to pray, as Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, that your love might overflow more and more and that this, the love of this body might overflow more and more. Pray that for your spouse, for your kids, for your friends, for the body at large. Pray that for yourself, that that the Holy Spirit would pour into your heart the love of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, uh, we are, as we measure our lives by this uh, text of Scripture, we fall short of the glory of God. There's no question that we have much to learn. And it is our heart's desire to become, by your grace, a more loving people. We would pray that uh, the properties of love that Paul describes for us here would become increasingly true in us. And uh, we would ask that your love would govern our actions so that what we do and what we say would have an impact upon others. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.